Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, you are in for a treat as we have our very own senior sustainability editor here at My Buddy Green, the one and only Emma Lowy here on the show to talk about her amazing new book titled Return to Nature the new science of how natural landscapes restore us. Who doesn't love a title like that? Emma, good to see you. Good to see you too, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be on this side of things. Such a pleasure. I loved, I loved your book and such an important message. So let's start with the why. Why the book? Yeah, so it's funny. I mean, I think this book is a culmination of a lot of the work that I've been doing at NBG for the past like seven years now, which is crazy to say. You know, over the years of interviewing folks about, you know, the intersection of climate and health, you know, I've had the honor of, you know, speaking with a lot of really incredible thought leaders in sustainability. And, you know, I found that oftentimes when I ask them about their initial inspiration to get involved in the work that they do, a lot of them can point to an experience that they had in nature or maybe an experience that they had in nature with their children that sort of inspired them to, you know, take action to protect this planet. So I thought it was, you know, I've always been intrigued by the idea of putting out a resource that helps people get outside more and then use that sort of connection that they formed with nature as almost like a catalyst for their environmental action. And so that was definitely part of it. And then I, I, was, I just think I've always been interested in the research on you know, the human health benefits of getting outside, just because I know it's something so many of us feel intuitively, but I always find it fascinating to read about the science behind it too. I love it. My buddy green, one word, not three, all connected. Yes. And so the subtitle is the new science of how nature landscapes restore us. So at the highest level, how does nature restore us? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I think that there's so much that sort of goes into a nature experience. Part of it is, you know, nature encourages us, I think, to move more. You know, folks who tend to live closer to parks also tend to be more active and you know, have more opportunity to sort of get the body moving. So that's obviously a very healthy thing, healthy thing to do. But, you know, I think what I was really interested in and what I sort of focused the book on was just the sort of cognitive benefits of getting outdoors. And, you know, there's a lot of research to show that when we, you know, have an experience outside, we tend to return more less cognitively fatigued you know we maybe will you know perform better on things like memory tests and we're just a bit sharper mentally so i think that's part of it and then there's also the emotional you know aspect of it and you know, study after study has shown us that people who tend to spend more time outdoors tend to report less stress less depression less anxiety and you know in in the process of calming us down i think nature has real tangible benefits on our health you know you i don't have to tell you just how dangerous stress can be. And it's something we write about a lot on My Body Green. But so I think, you know, seeing nature as sort of a, I don't want to call nature a tool, but as just another, you know, thing that we can sort of interact with in order to bring down our stress for the sake of. I agree with everything you said. And, and what I found so fascinating about the book and how you approached it, it, w it was a couple things. One, your focus on different landscapes. And then two, this section of the book, you dive into the evolutionary and cultural theories. And so can you spend a moment there? Yeah, totally. So I'll go over the culture on evolutionary first. So there are two sort of main theories as to why getting out in nature can do things like reduce stress and, you know, improve our sort of cognitive abilities. One of them is called the attention restoration theory. 
And this is focused more on the sort of cognitive side of things. And it essentially says that, you know, the way that we've adapted our lives and sort of our culture, our cultural practices, a lot of our day is pretty cognitively draining. You know, when we spend a lot of time on email or just are in meetings all day, you know, our brains really have to focus on, on all those sort of different points and getting outdoors into a certain type of landscape that, you know, we don't perceive as being too um, full or threatening sort of gives our minds a chance to relax. And they, the researchers who came up with this refer to it as, you know, nature gives us a lot of opportunity for what they call soft fascination. So if you think about you know, viewing a beautiful sunset, for example, like you're, you're attuned to that and your, your mind is paying attention to that, but it's not draining. You know, it's a, it's a opportunity for you to just be, I guess, at ease and it sort of wipes the mind clean and that, and that. so that's one side of things. And then the other theory that is a bit more evolutionary in perspective is called the stress reduction theory. And it basically just says that, you know, humans evolved in nature and you know, we sort of intuitively know when a natural environment has the resources that we need for survival. So when we get out into a beautiful landscape and we can have this expansive view of, you know, birds and water sources and all this, we feel, we feel safe and we, we feel at ease. So those are the two, the two. Uh, and you mentioned landscapes. Why the focus on different landscapes specifically in the book? Yeah. So I think... Uh, you know, part of it was, I just thought it'd be an interesting way to organize a book. It was, you know, we hear a lot about things like the benefits of forest bathing. We're increasingly hearing a lot more about the benefits of blue space. So, you know, oceans and coasts. But I was curious if there, if there is research on those sort of other, you know, places that we tend to get outside. I also just think people, we almost tend to like self-identify with certain landscapes. You know, people will say like, oh, I'm a beach person or I'm a mountain person. And we take great pride and comfort in that. So I was sort of curious to share, you know, maybe do some research on why that is, why we feel more comfortable in certain landscapes than others. I thought that presenting it that way would sort of get people excited uh, about, you know, their own landscape and then maybe new landscapes they hadn't really considered. It, it makes total sense. And in terms of landscapes, you, you reference some really interesting science. One of, one of the first ones I'll call out is a study at the University of Exeter Medical School that found those who live on England's coast tend to be happier than those who live inland. And you also reference studies in Ireland and Japan, essentially coming to the same conclusion. So what, what is it about the ocean specifically that seems to work wonders for our mental health? Yeah. So the ocean is really interesting. I mean, I think in my very informal surveys of friends and family about their favorite landscape, this is one that probably comes up the most for people. And, you know, I think we, a lot of us feel a certain affinity to the coast and that study out of Exeter. So there's actually a lot of really fascinating blue space research going on in the UK. And that was, you know, one of the larger ones It basically just found that folks who live within, I believe it was five kilometers of the coast tend to report better mood, less, you know, instances of depression. And that was after, you know, adjusting for things like income. So, you know, there's clearly something going on here. And I think it's a multiple things. You know, you think about going to the beach and there's obviously that opportunity to be active and, you know, also just lounge and take in that all important vitamin D. But, you know, I think there is, you know, sort of that that need to, to get moving when you're on the coast. And I also think about just the sounds of the waves can be incredibly restorative for people. And also just the pattern of the water, you know, I think it really lends itself to, again, that idea of soft fascination. You can just look at those sort of waves and, you know, just sort of train your brain to that, you know, slow, calming lap of waves. So 
I think those are sort of some some reasons that people feel pulled to the coast. And what's interesting too is it's water in general. You talk about rivers, streams. What was the most compelling science you came across on water in general? And I hear you, oceans seem to be number one for, for all the reasons you just mentioned, but just there's something about water. Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, it's it's interesting because I actually remember one of my first interviews that I did for the book was on this researcher by the last name of, of McCarran, and, and his research was called Mathiness, which is sort of a fun name, but essentially he would send folks out with an iPhone app and ping them at different times of the day to ask them what they were doing how they felt and what environment they were in. And he found that most often people felt restored and relaxed in an area that had both blue space and green space. So as opposed to, you know, they felt the least relaxed indoors, but the most sort of sense of ease where those sort of two landscapes met, which I think is sort of an interesting idea and a, a vote in rivers favoring. I think rivers sort of give us the opportunity to see multiple different sorts of landscapes, you know, meet each other and coalesce. And I think, you know, that is something that we feel innately drawn to as people. So in terms of water, next time we're, we're near a body of water, whether it's, whether it's an ocean, a stream, a bay, even a large puddle, are there any practices we should incorporate to really make sure we're realizing all the health benefits? Totally. So I think just looking at it is, you know, it, it seems to be very beneficial. There's, there's a few smaller studies that have been done across the world that essentially found that people who have views of water tend to rate them as more restorative than views of other, other natural landscapes. So I think just taking a moment to just look at sort of the patterns of the waves can be super beneficial. This is one that I've incorporated into my life here in Brooklyn. You know, I have a view of the East River outside of my window and Whenever I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed or just like I need a break, I try and fight the urge to like reach for my phone and just walk to the river instead and just look out onto that view and sort of, you know, let my mind tune to that, that wave pattern and find that doing that for just a minute can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. If someone does have a bit more time to, to devote, I think meditating outdoors and close to the water can be super great. Another really fascinating body of research um, out of Sweden found that folks who um, go through meditation programs outdoors versus indoors actually tend to have a higher completion rate from wow. the program, which is super, super cool. And, you know, it just this idea that as long as you're not meditating in a super noisy setting, like I don't know if I would necessarily meditate on like Fifth Avenue or something, but just sort of those nature sounds can, you know, sort of look inward. So I would say, yeah, heading out to the water and maybe doing a sit spot meditation. So close your eyes for a moment, open them, and then start to sort of gradually take in more and more of the landscape and, you know, expand the eye outward to sort of take in the scene and take in, you know, the sights and the sounds and to sort of attune to that place. It's interesting on a, on a personal level, I, you know, I track everything and I've noticed whenever I am by the beach my heart rate variability is at its highest, which is a good thing. I'm also not working as much, so that probably contributes as well, but there is just something magical about being near the ocean. In terms of the, the magic of nature, we'll, let's go inland, mountains. You, you reference moments of awe, and specifically a professor, Melanie Rudd at the University of Houston, who studied quote unquote awe experiences, which I found to be fascinating. So what did Professor Rudd find? 
Yeah. So, I mean, awe is just a super interesting emotion. I think a lot of us can, you know, recall a time when we got to the top of a mountain or reached some sort of expansive vista and, you know, our jaw dropped, we got goosebumps, you know, that's sort of, those are telltale signs of, of really having an awe experience. And one thing that's really unique about awe, the way that researchers define it is essentially you know, it's the emotion that comes to us when we are we encounter perceived vastness. So essentially, it's an emotion that makes us feel small. So it makes sense that it happens, you know, it tends to happen a lot in nature. But, you know, things like beautiful music or, you know, really resonant art can also lead to inspiring, awesome moments. So Melanie's work was super cool. I think my favorite study of hers was it was done in Switzerland. And she set it up so that she had researchers at the bottom of the mountain to talk to folks before they went on their hike and then at the top of the mountain after they had had that experience of seeing the view and at first she asked them to fill out a survey that asked them questions about their mood you know if they felt sort of more about their awe experience but also about their perception of time and how much time they thought that they had because she sort of suspected uh, might might alter time perception and so that was the first part of the experiment. And then when people filled that out, they sort of thought, you know, it was it was over. And they were then told that they could take a trail mix as a, as a thank you for participating. And they had the option to either make their own trail mix or take the trail mix that had been pre-made. And what they found was that those at the bottom of the hike were less likely to, or were likely to report that they felt strapped for time. And they were also more likely to take the pre-made trail mix. So essentially this finding is sort of, you know, it affirms this idea that awe can make us feel like we have more time. It makes us, you know, sort of more, puts things into perspective, so to speak. And it also makes us, I think, more creative is what researchers sort of suspect. You know, if we don't feel like we're rushed or we're, you know, so consumed with our own sort of like schedules, we have more time to open ourselves up to be creative and to try new things. So that was a cool little study. It, it, it is. And in terms of studies, I feel like forest bathing, it has to be at the top of the list, seems to be everywhere. Trees, the forest, so many, so much great science out there. I'm curious in terms of the science, does anything stand out to you in terms of being the most compelling? Yeah. So forest bathing is super, I think, unique in the sense though, of that research is being spearheaded by MDs as opposed to, you know, one of the blue space and green space research here in the States and the UK is by more like environmental psychologists. So forest bathing, I thought the most sort of fascinating part of it was just this idea that, okay, so for those who are unfamiliar and are picturing like actually going out into a forest in a bathtub or something. Um, forest bathing is a the English translation of a practice called shirin-yoku, which originated in Japan. And it's essentially um, taking a walk through a forest, but really engaging all of your senses as you do it. So really, you know, quote unquote, bathing in, in your surroundings. And those medical doctors are finding that after, you know, taking a, a trip into a forest while employing some of these mindful practices, people actually tend to come back with increased immune, like, sort of health. So one, you know, marker in particular that they have been looking at was the activity of NK cells, which are sort of a first line of defense in the immune system. And they found that after a three-day forest bathing trip, people tended to have increased NK cell count and activity. And interestingly enough, that that increase actually stayed for a 30-day follow-up. So, you know, I know you mentioned it's, it's you know, when we get outside, oftentimes we're leaving work behind. So that that sort of, you know, might have something to do with it. But I thought those, you know, that 30 day follow up was really showing that 
it's more than that. And it's, you know, it's something that really, that really stays with us. And something else I thought was quite fascinating. You reference in the book on forest bathing, high fractal and low fractal stimuli. Can you talk about the, what, what are they? Yeah. Yeah. So this is another very interesting body of research that a fractal is essentially, it's a pattern that continues, but it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So you can think about something like a tree branch. You can think about a head of broccoli, snowflakes or fractals. So these patterns are, are present in a lot of nature, but you know, trees in particular are really great, are a great example. And there is some work to suggest that one study in particular that I referenced that essentially had a group of students look at an image that had a high fractal frequency. So, you know, a lot of different repeating patterns in one image versus low fractal frequency. And they found that after looking at the high fractal one, students were actually better able to complete a puzzle, even though that was a more perhaps mentally stimulating image. There's some reason to believe that we almost feel comfortable in the presence of fractals and they're just very readable to us as humans. And there's some, some theories that humans are actually fluent in fractals and that we <laughs> know there are a lot of fractals in the human body as well. So we might somehow, you know, feel a certain resonance with that pattern. So that's another sort of, you know, reason that getting into the woods in particular might evoke something different in you. I think another thing is just the smell of the trees is super distinct. And another really fascinating body of research in forest bathing is this idea that when trees, um, trees give off these things called phytoncides and essentially what gives them their, their great smell and it's a type of essential oil. And they've done research to sort of isolate those smells and it shows that after we smell them, we actually do tend to have an increased heart rate variability. So again, it's the calming, you know, look of the branches, the calming smell of the leaves, all these things can sort of combine into that sort of nature experience. So super cool. So hearing you speak, it sounds like when we're doing our, our walk in a walk in the woods or amongst the trees, you really got to soak everything in using all of your senses to, to make it count. Absolutely. And I think that's a great reminder, you know, just for anyone as they go about their day to day, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this, but I'll head outside and I'll, you know, be on the phone or I'll be listening to something. And it's like, I'm not even really there. You know, I, I don't necessarily pay attention to what's going on around me, but I think just the simple act of bringing that awareness to it can, can really change the experience for the better. And so on that note, you and I both live in New York. We live in a city. Lots of our listeners live in cities. And sometimes you live in a city, you don't have easy access to oceans, mountains, rivers, or forests. And maybe we have access to a lone tree on a, on a, a, a block near us in our neighborhood. And so with that said, what did you find when you looked at studies that looked at cities? Yeah. So, I mean, this was obviously a chapter that had a lot of importance to me as a city of dweller, you know, starting to write this book. I, I started writing it right, right when COVID hit and I had really grand plans to go and explore these different landscapes. And, you know, I thought I'd be able to do a lot of travel. Obviously, that didn't happen. So speaking to researchers and learning that, you know, we can have these really restorative, incredible nature experiences within city limits, was it was very reassuring to me. I think a great example of this was there's a, a body of, of sort of larger scale research that essentially pairs residential address data, so information about where people live, and then satellite imagery to show how green or not green their surrounding neighborhood is. 
and that research has found that, you know, people who live in areas that have more access to greenery tend to report they've lowered instances of cardiovascular disease. They tend to be less likely to get diabetes. As I mentioned before, they tend to be more active. And then there's also just a, just a decreased mortality risk. Like people, they tend to live longer if you live close to green space. So, you know, city dwellers might hear that and think like, well, shoot, I'm, you know, I don't have any of that. I'm screwed. But, you know, in talking to the people who have done that research, they really hammer home the idea that it's not necessarily access to a grand expansive park that seems to have the you know the highest associations it's it's really the green space that's right outside of your front door and street trees totally count you know they 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 can get picked up in that satellite imagery so i think it's more just a matter of ensuring that our cities do have some you know access to green everywhere and really spreading that versus just focusing in on like one park is is really essential and i think it's a, a real you know public health it's a boon to public health on that note most city dwellers not most city dwellers, this city dweller loves house plants we have so many house plants in our apartment we've got house plants in our office and there was actually a study done you referenced in the book so th there's actually a horticultural therapist at nyu and i read that i was like okay that's a thing and he did a study on house plants so ta let's talk about the benefits of house plants because i love house plants yeah i mean me too obviously they're, they're all <laughs> but yeah and so this guy matthew richowski might have butchered his last name but he is a horticultural therapist at NYU, which I agree is, is super unique and fun. But essentially, his job is to you know go from room to room throughout the hospital and you know ask patients about the sorts of plants or flowers that they enjoy. You know, he sources them for them, and then brings them to their rooms, helps them plant them, get them set up in a nice spot, and then just you know sort of help them you know engage with those plants and just you know, sort of use them as a, a way to way to get through that like very stark hospital stay. So his his research is interesting. He did a study a few years ago on it was a cohort of about 100 patients who were recovering from a cardiac event. And he essentially found that the patients who underwent his horticultural therapy program tended to report a uh, better mood and also a lower heart rate after their um, sessions than those who did, you know, tr more traditional therapy. So I think that that is exciting for people like us who love plants because it shows that, you know, there might actually be some sort of you know, really, you know, restorative sort of benefits to keeping them in our home. I remember when I did the Zoom with Matthew, his home was full of houseplants. So I think that's a great endorsement just to, you know, the power of bringing the outdoors in. I love it. I'm a huge fan. A another study I thought was quite interesting. You mentioned the conservationist biologist, or excuse me, the conservation biologist, Richard Fuller in the book. A and he talks about nature's psychological benefits what were some of the, the biggest takeaways for you in, in researching Fuller? Yeah, so Fuller was interesting. You know, I think another sort of thing that drew me to this topic was, you know, we've touched on a lot of them already, but just the sort of variation of people who are doing this research. Fuller is a biologist. You know, we have we've touched on mathematicians doing the fractal research. Like this is really a cross-disciplinary field that, you know, a lot of people are sort of chiming in with their perspective. But Fuller has done some work to sort of show that when we get out into more biodiverse areas of nature with more plant and animal life, we actually rate them as being more restorative than those that have less biodiversity. And I think the, the interesting thing about that work is just that people don't necessarily, they aren't able to identify that they're in an area of high biodiversity. But again, it's that sort of innate knowing of I am in a place that, you know, has 
has all of this life. And there's some reason to believe that that is restorative in itself. Again, city dwellers might be thinking, oh no, you know, there's nothing to see here. But I had a fascinating conversation with a naturalist the other week, and she was telling me that of the 20 most common species uh, found in the U.S., 19 of them we have in New York City. So, wow. you know, it, it's here. It's just a matter of sort of attuning to it. What are we missing? I forget. I asked her. <laughs> I think it was a bird. It was a certain type of bird that only exists in like more tropical areas. That's funny. I'll take 19 out of 20. <laughs> so... I love the book and the research is just so compelling and there's so much research. I'm curious of all the studies, of all the conversations, what stood out to you? Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to choose just one and I'll go with a conversation that I had recently just because it's at the top of my mind, but it was with an epidemiologist at Harvard and he was behind some of that more mapping data. So, you know, pairing residential addresses with, with health markers and, he essentially found that they, when he made the finding that having more access to green space was associated with lower mortality, he figured that that would be, you know, a result of the decreased cardiac events or things of that nature. But he actually found that mental health was one of the most significant pathways to that. So just, he said up to like 30% of the patients who had the lower mortality, and that was sort of the, the cause of it. So I think that's just such, you know, a clear way that you know mental health is so incredibly important and it's not something that is just like a nice to have it's really a necessary to have and you know nature is is really a place that we can go to to improve it agreed you know as, as we chatted about when we first started you've been with us for seven years which is amazing and and we've come so far and the world has changed so much in in, in many good ways and in some ways not so good but we're optimists here with that said in terms of, you know, your beat, the sustainability beat, what's interesting to you right now in 2022? Like, what are you watching? Where do you think the science is going? What, what are you excited about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's so interesting to just think back on the last seven years. And, you know, when I first started at MBG, I feel like Nolan I mean, sustainability was just not nearly in the conversation as much as it is today. And I think a lot of that, you know, has to do with you know, people waking up to the, what the science is telling us. So in that sense, I've never been more hopeful, you know, just because I feel like my inbox is constantly flooded with companies who have initiatives to, you know, reduce their, their impact. You know, it's flooded with real thought leaders in the space who are starting their own campaigns. And I think we have more people in this movement than ever before, which is really what keeps me sort of motivated and hopeful. So yeah, I think just, just watch this space. <laughs> yeah. And I, I go back to, I, I remember when I settled in the name, my buddy green, and this is 2008 people would say, you know, wh why my body green? You know, I, I don't, I don't get it. And I think now it's just so clear. Everyone understands the, the connection to nature. And to your point, look, p people are always self-serving. And when you talk about mental health benefits, longevity benefits, when you're talking about cardiovascular health, nature is just so compelling to anyone who's just focused on themselves even <laughs> in terms of you know you, you made this great point earlier i hate saying that you know you don't you don't, you don't like saying that nature is part of our toolkit because it kind of belittles 
nature. I get that, but it's part of our toolkit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that my, you know, one of my real hopes for the book is that folks do sort of start to think about incorporating nature time into their wellness routine as a real, you know, cornerstone that is just as important as, you know, eating healthily and and exercising. But yeah, I always encourage people to take it one step further and then consider, okay, you know, nature has given me all of this stress reduction and, you know, it's sort of helped me reframe my day and find all and all this good stuff. You know, what, what am I doing in return? How am I reciprocating that? So yeah, every chapter of the book ends with actions that people can take to sort of protect that landscape. They just explored moving forward. So that's definitely very important to me. Yeah. And, you know, to build off of that, you know, let, let's say we're doing all the right things and we've achieved optimal health, but our, our planet is in complete disarray. Does it really matter if, you know, our, our, our homes are, are, are burning or, you know, we keep on experiencing these extreme weather events that are wreaking havoc on our communities? Like, how much does it really matter if we're in great health, if our surroundings are, you know, completely disruptive and people are losing their lives? It's, you know, to your point, it's important to Get it. You got to take care of yourself. Can't take care of anyone else. We can't take care, take care of you, but you got to think about the bigger picture. Totally. And I would even add to that. Like, I think that it's impossible to be totally healthy if our planet is ill, you know, every time we emit pollutants, it, it comes right back in our, in our air and, you know, it's what we do to nature. We do to ourselves. So. I, I'm not a huge fan of Prince Charles, but he's got this great quote around the air we breathe the water we take and that that is directly related to how we take care of our planet so emma thank you so much return to nature is the book congratulations love it and thank you so much for all the incredible work you do and seven years wow <laughs> well thank you jason it was fun it's fun to chat with you and so happy you enjoyed the book